Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say two things. First, unless anyone on Tatter says that they are speaking on behalf of any particular organization or group, you should assume that each person speaks for themselves and themselves alone. I always want to point that out to avoid misunderstanding. The second thing that I want to say is thank you. Thanks to each of you who offers financial support for Tatter through Patreon, but more generally, whether you do that or not, thanks for listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me. With all that said, let's get started. Here's Tatter. Uh, the motors will be along, and they'll kill it off. That was Charles Bronson playing the character Harmonica from the film Once Upon a Time in the West. At that moment, he's speaking of Morton, a businessman concerned only with himself and with his own financial interests specifically. At this point in the film, Morton is dead, but as Harmonica is suggesting, there are others like Morton who will come along in his wake with effects just as toxic as his. For the past four years, here in the U.S., we have had a president who is a businessman concerned only with himself. He's not dead, but his term as president is coming to an end, and it's ending despite his anti-democratic efforts to overturn the election, and most shockingly to many, his willingness to recklessly encourage his followers to march to the U.S. Capitol as Congress was counting the Electoral College votes that would ensure his defeat. Predictably, many of his followers did march, and they rioted, and they stormed the Capitol sending members of Congress and the Vice President rushing to safety. Several people died. Donald Trump has now been impeached by the House of Representatives for incitement of insurrection, and so he faces trial in the Senate. Even if the trial happens after he's left office, making removal moot, the Senate could still convict him and then vote to disqualify him from ever holding federal office again. I recently spoke to an expert on impeachment, discussing such questions as what the functions are that impeachment is meant to serve, what his thoughts are on this particular article of impeachment, and what comes after the Senate trial. The expert to whom I spoke is Frank Bowman, the Floyd R. Gibson Missouri Endowed Professor of Law at the University of Missouri School of Law. His many areas of expertise include legal history, criminal law procedure and sentencing, as well as impeachment of the president and other federal officers. I now share a conversation in this episode, which is titled Metastasis. Well, I'm uh, just a broken down old trial lawyer. Um, <laughs> I, was, uh, uh, I was a practicing lawyer for rather longer than is ordinary. I think most of the time for law school faculty, I was uh, in practice for something like 17 years, Yeah, uh, mostly as a prosecutor, though not exclusively. Um, I was in the Justice Department twice. I was a deputy DA in Denver once, in <clears throat> private practice uh, a couple of times. And, you know, at the conclusion of that, uh, I was interested in doing something a little different. Uh, I found I liked teaching because I'd done it some um, over the course of the years uh, at the uh, University of Denver as an adjunct. And later on, um, I did this weird thing where I actually switched jobs with a friend of mine 
who became a guy who became a friend of mine, where he became uh, an assistant U.S. attorney in Miami, where I was at the time for a year, and I became a law professor at Washington and Lee. Um, and I found, found I liked it, uh, not only because of the teaching, but also because I wanted an opportunity to write. Yeah. And so I managed to maneuver in such a way as and within a year or so after that, I ended up um, as a law professor. So that's how I got into the, the uh, law professing and you know, scholarship biz. And I am curious um, to know how you began thinking about impeachment in particular. Well, that happened not too terribly long after that, because uh, my first full-time uh, non-job switch gig um, as a professor was at, uh, at Gonzaga University in Mountain Spokane. Yeah. And in the midst in the uh, late 90s, and lo and behold, around that time, uh, Bill Clinton was impeached. And I got involved in writing about that. And the story that's actually mildly interesting, if only to academics, um, back in those primitive days, the way in which we all communicated with each other as a sort of a, as a scholarly collective was um, through, through uh, you know, email groups. Uh, and I was contributing to one um, on criminal law and got to be part of the conversation about impeachment that was obviously going to be going on at that time. And the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers reached out to me and said, hey, would you by any chance be interested in writing uh, some testimony on our behalf to be sent to the House Judiciary Committee on the meaning of high crimes and misdemeanors? Now, frankly, at that point, I don't know Jack about high crimes and misdemeanors more than anybody else did in particular. Um, But I said, sure. And I got together with a, a friend of mine there at Gonzaga named Steve Sepinuk, who, and, and he wrote up a, a, a part a sort of a historical appendix. And I wrote this testimony about the meaning of high crimes and misdemeanors, and particularly as it related to the peculiar facts of Bill Clinton's indiscretions. Turned that turned into a law review article. And, you know, so I became a sort of an instant authority of a very minor league sort uh, on, on, impeachment and I was happy to see for example that you know my little contribution was you know it's it's included if you go and you look at the you know the congressional materials on Bill Clinton's impeachment you'll find our uh, our little contribution um, and over the you know after the Clinton thing got finished over the next really 20 years I guess um, you know I occasionally would opine in you know, public press but I didn't really spend any time on scholarly stuff but then then Donald Trump came along and it became fairly clear to me from, you know, from early on that people were going to at least be talking about impeachment, whether or not it was justified or politically prudent. It was a different question, but it was clear that that was going to be a hot, hot topic for a long time. So sometime in 19 or 20, 2017, I started a, a blog called impeachableoffenses.net and I started writing um, for this writing on this blog about impeachment. And I also contributed a bunch of stuff to Slate where I'm still a contributor. And in due course, I decided, you know, uh, there's a book in here uh, out of all this work that I've been doing. And so I decided to write a book. So I uh, got a 
contract from Cambridge University Press and uh, in fairly short order, um, wrote a book which came out in uh, the, the late summer of 2019, just as, you know, the, the, the Ukraine business kind of broke. Yeah. And, you know, so since then, here we are. Impeachment as an institution, as a, as a function, as a tool, derives from British practice. The first, it was basically invented by the British Parliament back in the 1300s as a, a tool to be used by Parliament, which is then sort of the, you know, the rep- represented the, the, uh, the landed interests of, of England, its aristocracy, and to some extent, the, you know, the, the, the lesser gentry against the interests of the crown. And impeachment was a way to strike back at uh, royal overreach. Now, impeachment in Britain was never uh, usable against the king or queen. Personally, it was instead usable primarily against the the crown's ministers, uh, against judges. And interestingly enough, as time went along, it's pretty much anybody. Parliament can impeach anybody. at one point later on, they, you know, they impeached a number of private citizens. They impeached a guy in, in, in named uh, Reverend Satcherell, who uh, had the, the bad taste to give a seditious sermon, and um, you know, Parliament impeached him. Um, that was something that, you know, for example, the Framers knew about. Benjamin Franklin actually has a copy of the proceedings in Parliament on his impeachment and had, had, had this in his library. But anyway, to go back uh, over time impeachment assumed a number of functions in Great Britain. The principal constitutional function was as a way of uh, counterbalancing royal overreach, not by, of course, impeaching the king or queen, but instead by striking at his or her ministers as the instruments of royal authority. Um, But it also served sort of other housekeeping functions. You get rid of corrupt judges, corrupt ministers, you know, the odd, loud-mouthed um, actual preacher, one thing or another. But the constitutional fun- the core constitutional function was, you know, as a legislative counterweight to royal power. Now, when we came around to our turn to write a, a constitution, uh, we, of course, imagined a very different, we, those, say, the framers, imagined a very different kind of governmental organization. Obviously, we intended to be a a democratic republic. Um, And in particular, with respect to the executive power, there was a decision early on not to have a king. They thought about it. And Alexander Hamilton famously was rather in favor of somebody king-like to run the place. But in the end, they decided that that was sort of inconsistent with the tenor of the the times and of of the popular will, and and they didn't want a, a new king. So they created, but, but they also understood that because the Articles of Confederation, which had you know, governed the alliance, and that's really all it was between the initial states from 1776 uh, on through uh, the, the adoption of our current constitution, and that alliance was not terribly effective. And one of the things that was missing was any sort of executive authority. They didn't actually have a national executive during that yeah. period. Their place was run by Congress through committees. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, running anything by committee is always a challenge. And it was a challenge then, it remains a challenge. And and for that and many other reasons, they came together in Philadelphia in 1787 in the summer and, and tried to reorganize and create a, a stronger, more ultimately more centralized government. And as part of that, they recognized they needed an executive. It wasn't going to be a king. Um, they thought about a plural executive, a committee. They decided against that. Um, they decided that they were going to have a president, and they decided that this president would not serve during good behavior like judges do now, but instead would uh, would serve for terms of four years. Now, what's all this got to do with impeachment? Well, um, at first, there was at least a school of thought that this president person, A, probably wasn't going to be very powerful anyway. The framers imagined um, that the, the natural locus of authority in a, in a republic would be the legislature. Couldn't really imagine that the, the power would, you know, would center anywhere else to any significant degree. So they would find they would find they would find the current nature of the presidency and the power that uh, sits there uh, unrecognizable. Yeah, I mean they 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 couldn't possibly have imagined. Well, they, they couldn't have imagined so many of the things about the modern world, about modern America. But you know, if we were to try to put ourselves in their heads, yeah, you know, did they anticipate that you know, this president person would not only become the dominant? overpowering figure in American government, but literally the most powerful human in the world, capable of obliterating us all uh, on his whim. No. Um, And it made sense because at the time, you know, there were something fewer than a a thousand national employees in the whole 13 states up and down the seaboard. And most of those people were customs officials and (laughs) they had like, they had they had no technical standing army and the only army they had like had, had like 186 guys in it. I mean, it was, and George Washington, when he became finally did become president, basically could run the government out of his hat. He didn't, he had essentially like, you know, a couple of secretaries and that was about it. So they didn't really imagine that this, this person would be very, very powerful, but they were, and I'm, I'm writing about this today. Uh, they were nonetheless, extraordinarily um, leery of the rise of what they would have would and did often refer to as demagogue. Um, they were extraordinarily leery because of their study of, of the classical world of the only other really places that they could look in history or certainly to which they had any access to think about what, what would this Republic thing look like? We're trying to do something now here in 1787 that, has never been done or to the extent it has, it's been a couple of thousand years. We're trying to assemble a federal Republic along a vast expanse of territory. um, And we're trying to govern it on fundamentally democratic principles. Where are their models for that? And there are very few. I mean, they looked to some, some things that the Dutch did. They looked at some other things that the Swiss did maybe, but mostly because these guys were raised with sort of classical educations. They looked at the Romans and the Greeks. And the lesson, one of the lessons they drew from that study was that republics are vulnerable to the rise of demagogues. Yeah. Uh, people who you know, either gain power through, the, you know, the, through, through demagogic um, uh, approaches, or once they gain power, retain it 
um, and try to make themselves into dictators. So that being, because that was their whole framing, almost all the conversation about impeachment is about the, the president. We've rarely used it for that purpose. It's almost always been used for judges. And they barely even thought about that uh, in 1787. It was an afterthought at best. They were focused when writing the impeachment clauses on the president. They were, they were concerned, first of all, about the, an, having an ability to remove a president before the natural expiration of his term. That's the removal provision in, in our, our constitutional impeachment clauses. But they were also, because they were concerned about the potential continuing danger of a dictatorial or demagogic figure, they were also worried that removal wouldn't necessarily be enough. Yep. That such a person um, would continue to present some sort of risk to the Republic. Now, one of the other things that you see when you compare British practice with American is that in Parliament, impeachment was a quasi-criminal process in that if you got impeached by the House and convicted by the House of Lords, House of Commons and convicted by the House of Lords, you could not only be removed from office, but all the penalties that we think of as being incident to, you know, to criminal law, up to and including in England at the time being beheaded, um, or for that matter, drawn and quartered, um, were possible penalties under English impeachment practice. Now, the framers didn't want that. They were uh, acutely aware that there were abuses of that system, and they didn't want the legislature passing judgments on people that could produce those kinds of consequences, those kinds of personal consequences. I can, imagine, I, can ima I can imagine that many Americans on the left are nostalgic for uh, those possibilities now, but I digress. Well, you know, thank God that they didn't do that. <laughs> you don't need that uh, on either side. Um, but um, what they wanted, they wanted to also to, to say, well, we're not saying that a, the president is immune from the operation of criminal law because they put into the impeachment clauses a specific provision that um, you know, he, he, a person impeached, an official impeached, remains amenable to the criminal law, but only through the operation of the ordinary courts. Right. But so, so you have a structure where they're thinking about the presidency. They're wanting to be able to assure, they, assure themselves they can remove him before the termination of his office. They don't want a system in which, you know, Congress can vote to chop his head off. But they want some additional assurance uh, lodged in the political branches, a, a protection against a really dangerous figure. And the answer to that problem was disqualification. Yep. Uh, it, the idea is, okay, we can not only remove him now, but we can ensure that he can't ever return at least to national political life. Now, nothing in the U.S. Constitution precludes even an impeached person from going on and doing anything else, running for state governor or you know, what you will, but at least the disqualification provision keeps such dangerous people, can keep such dangerous people out of national uh, appointed or elective office. 
um, I have to ask uh, questions that focus on where we are now with Trump having been impeached for the single uh, article of impeachment of um, incitement of insurrection. I wonder if you would be willing to share your thoughts on A, whether you see the conduct referenced in that article of impeachment as, in fact, uh, an impeachable offense. And B, uh, I wonder if you think that the narrowness of the scope of this article of impeachment, focusing on the incitement of insurrection rather than the totality of his conduct since the election, whether the narrowness of the scope might uh, make it more likely to, well, I, I, I won't, I don't want to lead too much, but I wonder what your thoughts are on the potential, um, uh, um, the narrowness of the scope. So for example, uh, if you were drawing up articles, uh, do you think a case could have been made for uh, additional articles uh, that would uh, jointly constitute a broader um, uh, impeachment against him? Couple of points in sequence. First, on their face, or on its face, the current article plainly states an impeachable offense. Bada boom. Um, you know, the relevant constitutional standard is whether or not uh, the, the officer has committed a high crime or misdemeanor. Treason or bribery, you don't need to worry about here. And the answer is sure. I mean, inciting insurrection um, is high crime or misdemeanor, sort of a paradigm of high crime or misdemeanor. So the state of defense is plainly impeachable on its face. Now, um, might a case be made for a broader uh, framing of this? The answer is surely yes. Uh, I've already written about that um, at, at some length. Um, there's a, if your listeners want to sort of see the whole thing, there's, I wrote a piece just a few days ago on, a, on an online uh, publication called Just Security. And it lays that out in some detail. And in some, it says more or less what you implied in your question. I think the, the real impeachable fence here is Trump's conduct since the election, during which time uh, he has actively schemed to overturn the free and fair results uh, of uh, a properly conducted election. He's done so by actively and consciously creating a false narrative about um, the about election integrity, about the um, possibility that there may have been election fraud, which you know, there is absolutely no evidence that there was. He did so uh, by attempting to intimidate state officials into undoing the results of elections conducted in their state, most notably by the now famous phone call to um, Secretary of State Raffensperger in Georgia. Uh, he did so uh, by attempting to pressure his vice president into doing something that a vice president plainly has no constitutional power to do, which is to essentially reject uh, the electoral votes proposed by the states and substitute his own opinion for who won. Uh, he did so by trying to pressure Congress, uh, both houses, into refusing to accept uh, the verdict of the states and of the, of the so-called electoral college. Um, and frankly, uh, in my view, everything that he did up to and before the moment where he took the stage on January the 6th with this group of people in front of him 
was already impeachable um, easily because what he was doing was attempting uh, wholly unlawfully and unconstitutionally uh, to induce state and federal officials to overturn uh, the results of, of an honest democratic election and to install him literally, quite literally, as an unelected autocrat. Now, um, what happens there on that day, tragically, is as part of this overall scheme, he has invited to Washington, D.C., crowds of people saying, come, we're going to demonstrate. It's going to be wild. And then, you know, a segment of that crowd is in front of him, and he says what he says, whereupon they march down to the Capitol and break in and kill people and so forth and so on. Um, now, I think it's part, it's a, it's a lar- it's part of a larger pattern and, and narrative, and no part of that can be understood or appreciated without the rest of it. As to the particular article, um, you know, I have urged people in, in, in Congress, uh, I did urge people in Congress to take a somewhat broader view, but uh, at the end of the day, they took the approach they took. And I think not only does the current article state uh, an, an impeachable offense, I think it's entirely justifiable on the facts. I mean, there are going to be uh, technical quibbling defenses raised, and you already saw this in the House debate the other day. Most of those are going to center on trying to do some sort of pettifogging parsing of his language in that speech claiming that he didn't actually intend to incite people to go down and actually, you know, forcefully try to enter, um, enter the Capitol. Um, I, who knows what he specifically desired in terms of specific conduct, but I think it's undeniable that what he did that day certainly foreseeably resulted in mob violence. And we're not talking about here about proving crime. We're talking about establishing a, a constitutional a constitutional offense. Is it an offense against the Constitution for the President of the United States to gather to the national capital a mob of people, pump them up for the purpose of pressuring Congress to do something which Congress has no power to do, which is to install him as an unelected autocrat? Um, I, 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 I'm sorry to interrupt. I agree, but don't you think that the job of the House managers in making a case for removal is more difficult with just this one hat hook to hang their hat on rather than if they could, say, make reference to the just get me 11,780 votes uh, comment? Well, they did. I mean, if you read the article, I mean, the article went through various iterations. Um, and um, if you, it's a, it reflects the fact that it's a work of a committee and the work of I know, a, a, a legislative body in a hurry. And I think they are properly in a hurry. You know, would I have written it differently? Absolutely. Do, did I suggest at the time, gosh, guys, um, you may be providing technical defenses to the president's uh, supporters that you don't need to provide by drafting the article in this way. Yes, that's precisely the suggestion I made, but they had their own reasons. And I think, you know, some of them, 
Some of them are emotional, some are, are political. Uh, after all, from their perspective, the core of the problem is they were all almost murdered, or you know, certainly they were, some of them you know, were in danger, uh, and the Capitol was breached, and there was violence in their building. Uh, there was a violent assault on, on the legislative branch of government. And from their perspective, and quite obviously, the president sent those people there. And that's a fact. I mean, exactly what he intended the people to do when they got there, I think from the perspective of a lot of congressmen, is rather beside the point. Um, and for their... and. and and thus, I entirely understand the, the, the focus of the article that the House passed because it, it does two things. One, it gets to the sort of the emotional core of, of the problem. And the other thing it, do, it, it does is, to some degree, it avoids, or perhaps so they thought, asking Republicans to condemn the ongoing effort that so many of them joined in mm-hmm. in casting doubt on the results of the election. Interesting. Uh, so, you know, for whatever reason, we have the article we have. I think it's entirely, entirely provable. It's entirely constitutional. Would I have written it differently? Sure, but I don't get a vote. I'm just some dude in Missouri <laughs> who does not count in any material way. Let's not get ourselves here. So, Congressman Waldy, and I think I may have seen you quote him in um, some of your writing. This must be Jerome uh, uh, Waldy. Um, he's quoted as saying, quote, uh, impeachment of a president should not be undertaken to punish a president, but to constitutionally redefine and to constitutionally limit the powers of the presidency when those powers have been dangerously extended and abused, end of quote. Under this view that impeachment is not there to punish the president, but to constitutionally redefine and limit the powers of the presidency when those powers have been dangerously extended and abused, under this view is a potential side effect, or perhaps even uh, an intended effect, that impeachment, especially with conviction, could leave a subsequent office holder say one named Joseph Biden, more constrained than he would otherwise be? Well, I mean, I happen to agree with the idea that impeachment is at its core about defining the relationship, the proper relationship between um, presidential power and the remainder of the, the, the national government. Yes, I think that's true. And, you know, most sort of radically from a theoretical point of view, I've written that um, when push comes to shove, if you have a president who has sort of one view of the constitutional future of the country and the Congress has an entirely irreconcilable view, as was true in the post-Civil War era between Andrew Johnson and uh, the Republican-dominated Congress, then in my view, um, if the if the if the difference of opinion is irreconcilable and if the president insists on trying to take the country more or less forcibly down the path that he prefers, in, in my view, 
Congress gets to make the choice. And if they want to enforce it, they can do it by impeaching and removing the president. Now, that's a moderately controversial view, I suppose. But I don't think it has much application in the present instance. This impeachment is not about some incremental increase in presidential authority, right? It's not about even like overreaching in foreign affairs and trying to use the powers of the presidency to even sort of augment the electability of the sitting president. This is about a guy who tried to overturn democracy, mm-hmm. right? I mean, directly, overtly, unapologetically, out in, out in public before January 6th even happened. I don't think Joe Biden needs to be told not to do that. <laughs> I just don't. Whatever sins you know, Joe may, may have or character defects he may have, that ain't one of them, okay? Um, I think instead he's in fact, uh, you know, if, if people on the left at least are going to complain about him, they're likely to complain about him for undue caution. Now, people who know him, you know, I was having a conversation with such a person yesterday, suggest that that won't necessarily be the case. I don't know. I've only met the man once. But I don't think that's the problem we're facing here. Uh, so this, this, this impeachment is not about, in any fundamental way, redefining the relationship, uh, power relationship between president and Congress. This is about whether or not Congress, more importantly, whether or not one of America's great political parties is willing to defend the democratic order. Whether congressional Republicans are willing to defend, I mean, selfishly, just the basic prerogatives of the legislature, but more broadly, whether they're willing to defend the democratic processes uh, and the processes of legitimacy that put them in that building in the first instance to be threatened. And sadly, it would appear, uh, a regrettable fraction, certainly of House Republicans, um, are too frightened, too deluded, too power mad to come to the defense of the country. I mean, the last, the thing to consider is not only did only 10 of them vote to impeach Donald Trump the other day, but on January the 6th, after all of them had been threatened with, with death by a rampaging mob, They came back into the chamber the very same evening and two thirds of the Republican caucus voted in favor of the pernicious lie that put the mob at their door. Now think about that for a second. That is the, that is the fundamental challenge with which we are going to be left when Trump leaves office. It is a fundamental challenge. I think a part of the response to which is to impeach, convict, and bar this man from ever serving in office again. Now, doing that will not entirely cut out the cancer that he has helped grow. Because left behind are going to be those two-thirds of the Republican caucus and the millions of Americans who have been deluded. Oftentimes, I think, honest, I mean, one can be honestly deluded. I think millions of Americans, I think most of the crowd outside that building were honestly deluded. And here's the, here's the, here's the thing that, again, is, is equally frightening. If I believed what those people believed, 
that there had in fact been a massive plot to steal the election and that it had been successful and that the candidate who genuinely won, my candidate, had, been, had had the election stolen from him by dark forces, I'd have been out there with him. Yeah. Or at least prepared to take uh, whatever action was necessary to overturn this travesty. Most of those people, some of those people are maybe cynics. Some of them, a good many of them are a little nuts. But I think the most that most of them believe the lie. And which, which, the which, problem which, is, which, 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 which heightens the responsibility of the liar. It, not only of the liar, Trump is the chief liar. But again, this, this is the last point I'll make and I got to go. In many respects, I think. The people, some of the people on the inside of that building mm-hmm. were much more at fault than the people on the outside trying to break in. Because the people on the inside who promoted or at least permitted uh, the perpetuation of the lie that the election had been stolen knew better. Now, some of them maybe don't. Louis Gohmert, for example, God knows what he thinks. Um, you know, Matt Gates, who knows? I mean, some of these guys, you know, the Bobert, the pistol packing lady from, you know, my home district back in Colorado, who knows what she thinks? Some of these people may be deluded, but most of them know. And most of them are willing to promote their own, or at least prolong their own political futures by accepting or promoting the lie that American democracy had been, had been cheated and they're more at fault, far more at fault than the deluded people in the crowd. And they're going to still be there whenever we get rid of Trump and in whatever form we get rid of him. Um, but I think, as I say, that, that impeaching him and disqualifying him is at least a start at dealing with that uh, persistent problem. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Frank Bowman for taking the time to talk with me. For more information about him and the issues we discussed, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode where you will see relevant links. To offer feedback on this or any other episode of Tatter, you can on Twitter mention Tatter using the handle at tatter underscore rags, or you can post a rating and or a review at Apple Podcasts. Or to offer more private feedback, you can send an email to tatter.rags.2017 at gmail.com. To offer financial support for Tatter, you can go to Patreon and find the page for Tatter, where you can sign up to become a patron. But be aware, if you are currently a student at the college where I teach, I cannot accept your support, but for all others, come on in, the water's just fine. With all that said, and as always, thanks for listening, and be well.